Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 25. That's where we're going to be today. We're ending our series in 1 and 2 Kings. And while you're turning, I'll just say just another day to be really thankful for our team here who leads us in worship. Uh, George, who would normally lead us, was sick today. So Chris, who's supposed to be behind the board, jumped up last second and is uh, leading us. And so aren't you thankful for the team who uses their gifts to lead us? Let me just say, I mean, some of you know, some of the folks that are up here, some of you don't, but just their, their heart is not to just use their musical gifts to serve the Lord or to perform for us. It's to lead us into the presence of God together. And they do that so well. I'm thankful for Chris and this whole team. I'm thankful for George. They do such an excellent job of that. So, man, lots to celebrate today. Uh, as Ken said, it's Father's Day. Now, I don't know if that day hits you as a sad day, if you had a, a, maybe a tough experience of fatherhood uh, with your dad, or you know, maybe you long to be a father, you're not. Maybe it's, a, it's a, just a great reminder of a great dad that you have in your life. But either way, whether it's a day that is a challenge or it's a day that's full of joy, the thing to recognize is that this day is a day to celebrate the fatherhood of God for you in Jesus Christ. So it's a day to remember, and no better place to be than in the house of God to worship him and tell him, thank you for becoming my father. Thank you for being the perfect father where every earthly father doesn't measure up. That's true of the best uh, of earthly fathers. And so we're thankful for that. It's also Juneteenth, which is a day that we commemorate the, the Emancipation Proclamation being declared to the last group of slaves in Galveston, Texas, who became aware uh, of the freedom that they had been afforded under constitutional change. And that is worth celebrating, yes? Amen, because we have a God who brings injustice to an end and brings freedom even greater than earthly freedom. So no better place to be than in the house of the Lord today, celebrating what God has done. What a good thing that is. Not only that, we have much going on this week. So next, tomorrow, our middle schoolers head off to Harvey Cedars. Uh, I, want to, I want you to be praying for them this week. You know, these times of retreat away are, I don't know if you had this experience, I certainly did growing up in the faith, moments where there are these signpost moments where God just says, you're mine, you belong to me, and I'm gonna help you know it in a deeper way than you knew before. And I pray that this week would be that for some of our students this week. So this is a week of, uh, another week of intentionally raising up the next generation of Christ's followers. So let's be praying, yes? And then also we're hosting Aroma Camps here this week. So for the even younger group than that, they're gonna be utilizing sports to learn about Jesus, use the, the good gift of a healthy body for so many of them that God has given. And it's gonna be a great week of that as well. So just a ton going on, a ton to celebrate, a ton to be thankful for. So let's pray together and then we'll dive into God's word. Lord, thank you for your word. Now, sharpen our minds, soften our hearts so that we are ready to receive all that you would have for us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we've been going through the book of first, books of First and Second Kings, my guess is where we're gonna end today is not gonna be any surprise to you if you've been following along, if you haven't been here, if it's your first time, catch you up, right? Uh, which is to say, we've been going through this book, that's, these books that have been all about these kings who keep failing. The best kings start well and don't end well. The worst ones don't even begin well, right? And so there is just failure after failure. And so we come to the conclusion of our study of these books and the books end where you probably would expect them to end. And that's with God's people being sent into exile as punishment for their sin, as a way of God saying, you have not listened to me. You have not kept the covenant that I've made with you. Uh, you have not kept up the end of what I've required of you. And so now here comes the exile. It ends on a very low note. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, hundreds of years before this, God had warned them and he had said, you are 
going to go into exile if you don't obey what I tell you to do. So the first half of Deuteronomy chapter 28 is filled with all these really wonderful promises. If you'll walk with me and obey my covenant and keep covenant with me, these are all the blessings that will descend upon you. And the last half of the chapter is, and if you disobey, if you will not keep covenant, these are all the curses that will fall upon you. And so we find ourselves just now receiving the fulfillment of that. Now, that being said, let me tell you two things. Number one, if you grab the sermon notes on the way in, this is one of those weeks where the sermon changed on Saturday. So those notes are no good. Really sorry. I got fresh stuff for you. Don't even worry about it, all right? So just mark off those points. You can use it as blank paper, right? Don't, I don't wanna see any crumpling up, all right? So, but just, just so you know, that's the case. Now, as we come to, now the second thing is that as we come to the exile, the thing I want you to understand is that there is a broader and bigger purpose in the exile than we might think. So as we read the verses we're about to read, it's gonna feel like we're ending the book on a really low note. But this is one of those things that you have to wait a little time, in this case, hundreds upon hundreds of years to understand what's gonna come. I'm sure you, we've all experienced this. I'm sure at some point over the last couple of years, you probably had to take a, a, a take-home COVID test, Yes. You wait those 15 minutes, right? So I was talking to my mom and my dad. I got on the phone, happened to call at a time when mom said, oh, I've been feeling under the weather. I just took a COVID test. This is a couple of weeks ago. And then I happened to be there as she's going, oh, the 15 minutes is up as we're talking, I'll check. And then I got to listen to 10 minutes of my parents argue over whether it was negative or positive. <laughs> Might as well not have been on the phone. So thankfully they did come to the agreement that it was negative. So I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I don't know but mom as well, all is good. But it takes time sometimes, right? You take, you take a test like that, you know, time release, medicine, allergy pill, all that kind of stuff. It takes time to see the effect of the thing that has happened here is gonna be revealed over here. And that's what we're gonna see with the exile today. There's this thing happening in 2 Kings chapter 25 that is really discouraging, but there's something bigger going on. And that's what I wanna show you today. So here's the big idea today, is that you and I are meant to learn to live as exiles in the earth. And let me just say that I'm, I'm journeying along with you on this. This is one of those things where part of the reason this, the sermon changed on Saturday is because I feel like I'm just beginning to, to start to plumb the depths of an understanding of what it means to live as an exile. It's a really rich scriptural theme, one that I in my own, own walk with the Lord have not spent a ton of time settling in on and reflecting on, maybe you have, we're gonna reflect a good bit upon it today. So we're gonna be in a number of different places in the scriptures today. We'll have the words on the screens. It might be a little like Bible you know, drill here if you wanna, if you wanna keep up, uh, but we'll kind of come back to this Second Kings text as our anchor. Now, so that's our big idea God doesn't want us just to learn from the exile of Judah, like what was it like for them? He wants us to learn to live as exiles ourselves. We'll talk about what that means. So four lessons about living as an exile and what that means for us. Let's read 2 Kings chapter 25, verses one to 12. They say this. <clears throat> and in the ninth year of his reign, Zedekiah, who's the king of Judah at the time, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So almost two years. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. 
Then a breach was made in the city and all the men of war fled by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden and the Chaldeans were around the city. Now you understand what's just happened is all the men of war have left and who's still in the city? The women and the children. And they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude Nebuzaradan, the king, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now, can we agree this is a sad story, yes? We come to the end and we recognize that as we've been reading through these books of the Bible, this is sort of the expected end as we've watched king after king forsake the covenant that God has made with them. They have worshiped idols. They failed to break down the high places. They failed to practice worship according to the law. They have exalted themselves, not the Lord. And thing after thing after thing, we have watched them break covenant with God. And so in a kind of straightforward sense, we go, okay, well, as I follow the story, it makes sense then that this is kind of where we end. And, and that's probably the purpose of it is to kind of learn like this is what happens. You know, sin has consequences and there you go. But is that it? I mean, that's really the question I want you to ask. Is that it? Is that the only lesson that we're supposed to learn here today is sort of that sin has consequences. And that's certainly a lesson to be drawn from this. But what I want you to see is like I said earlier, there's something much bigger going on with the exile of Judah. In fact, God is at work bringing about his purposes, not in spite of it, but through it. So that you and I then on this side of the cross are called to learn to live like exiles. Not just a negative lesson about the consequences of sin, but a lesson about what it means to live as exiles, the mindset, the heart, the focus of those of us who understand that this is what God has called us to. So that's what I want you to see. God is accomplishing something much bigger. Let's see what that is together. So first lesson, I told you four lessons that we're gonna look at. Lesson number one, and since I didn't have these for you, I'll repeat them, all right? Number one, learning to live as exiles means learning God must be obeyed. That's the first lesson. Learning to live as exiles means learning that God must be Obeyed. Now, this relates to the thing that I just said about sin and its consequences. I already referred to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and how God lays out the blessings that will come for obedience, the consequences that will come for sin and rebellion. But here's the thing I want you to see is that what had happened really among the people of God, among Judah and among Israel, was that they had begun to do a thing we call presuming upon God which means that they presumed that because God had called them his own people and said, you're mine and made a covenant with them, that they didn't need to live a certain way, that they could do whatever they wanted and that God would say, I'll still look out for you and I'll still take care of you. 
They presumed that they could do whatever they wanted. And God says, no, when I call you into covenant with myself, I call you while I keep covenant with you in faithfulness, I call you to keep covenant with me in faithfulness. And if you won't, there will be consequences to that. Now that makes sense in the Old Testament context, but we think then, well, what about the New Testament where we believe that once God has redeemed us in Christ, we can't lose that. So what do you mean that there would be consequences? And while we believe that you certainly cannot lose a salvation that God has purchased for you, we do believe that if you presume upon God to claim the name of Jesus and live then any way you want in denial of that truth that you belong to him, you would reveal that you never truly belong to him and your sin would have its consequences. This is what Romans 2 means when it says this. Again, I told you we're gonna jump around. So let me me read to you what Romans 2 says in the New Testament about how God thinks about this. Romans chapter two, verses four and five. Having just talked about not judging others for the sin that you yourself are still doing. That's what Paul has just talked about. Like, why would you judge someone for something you yourself are doing, he says. Then in verse four and five, he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Isn't that good that God uses kindness to lead us to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen, this is written to a church, to people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And so when Paul is saying that, what he's declaring to them is that if you find yourself claiming the name of Jesus and then living any way you want, as if that is not to impact the way that you live, as if it's not a call to righteousness and holiness and repentance, if you fail to see the kindness of God in Christ leading you to repentance, be warned that you are in danger of coming under the wrath of God. Do not presume to claim the mercy and forgiveness of God offered in the blood of Jesus and then walk away and live a life that does anything but exemplify the nature and the love and the mercy of God. Does that make sense, church? It's a warning. It's a hard warning to hear but it's a necessary warning and the scriptures speak it to us again and again. Do not presume upon the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. Now listen, the thing that you and I recognize is that to be exiles, or that we're meant to to recognize is that to be exiles means to live with a mindset that says, I am called to obey all that God calls me to and to obey his word. And we get mixed up because we have this sense, and just like Israel did, that obedience means a loss of freedom, that obedience means a loss of joy, that obedience means a loss of life. Why did they want to worship at the high places? Why did they want their idols? Why did they want to continue to practice unjust practices and unfair trade among themselves? Why did they want to do that? Because they thought it was to their betterment because they thought they were missing something if they obeyed God. And this has always been the case with people because of our sinful hearts that make idle, their idle factories is that we convince ourselves so easily in our fallenness that the path to greatest joy and and fulfillment is something other than obedience to the word of God. Do you know that there is no joy true and lasting outside of obedience to the commands of God? 
We've got to embrace that and believe it. And exiles know it. Exiles who live not in their true home and know they're not home say, oh, that, I'm made for that, not for this. And therefore they say, oh, obedience and joy, hand in hand, always. Obedience and joy, never separate, always together. Never look for joy outside of obedience. You will not find it. You'll find a faux version of it. You'll find a generic copy of it and it will always let you down. It may not be today and it may not be tomorrow, but it will not produce true and lasting joy. It cannot by definition because you weren't made for it. That's what exiles know. This is what uh, Peter says. So Peter is this fascinating letter, this epistle in the New Testament. And he uses, there's debate among scholars over the years that seems to have mostly kind of honed itself into to settlement here. That there's this idea that is Peter writing to Jews who have become Christians or is he writing to Gentile Christians? And I do believe the answer is to Gentile Christians, but he uses this reference to the exile of the Jews and talks to them like they are exiled Jews. He's using that as a metaphor. And he's saying, you are to learn New Testament Christian from the exile of your ancestors, of those who are not your physical lineage, but those who are your spiritual heritage, uh, the Jews. And so listen to what he says in 1 Peter 16 through 19. Again, he, this theme of exile is just ever present with Peter. He says this, verse 16, chapter one, he says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's God speaking. You shall be holy for I am holy. That's obedience. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your what? Exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, I want you to see what Peter's doing there. He's juxtaposing two things and he's bringing them together in a really beautiful way. One, he refers to them as exiles. And what he's saying is you need to understand yourself through this lens. And if you do then, that you are going to be a person who waits for the appearance of one who is both your father coming with great love who you are waiting for saying, dad, come and get me. And you are also waiting for the one who is the perfectly righteous judge who knows how to bring judgment upon all sin. And therefore he says, you wait with fear, with awe struck wonder at the purposes of God, bringing these two realities together saying, my father and my judge are coming. And so I am awestruck and I wait as an exile, wanting then to walk in the holiness of God. Be holy for I am what, church? Holy. That's the mindset of an exile. I wanna obey obedience and joy, hand in hand, always. Now, that's the first lesson. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. Learning to live as exiles means learning to rest in our identity. He's learning to rest in our identity. I use that rest very intentionally. How many of you have had like, isn't it just the best feeling at the end of a really long day, you're mentally tired, you're physically tired, where you just like, you want nothing more than to crawl into bed? You know that feeling? And you just like throw yourself into bed and you think, oh, this feels really good. Just resting in bed. 
summon up that image, if you can, as you think about what it means to rest in your identity, to fall wholly into it. When we think identity, think two things, value and purpose. That's really what makes up an identity. Where does my value come from? What is my purpose in life? Where does my value come from? What is my purpose in life? And thinking through the lens of an exile helps us understand how we can further rest in our identity. Now understand, here's what would have happened for Judah. Judah goes into exile. And in that moment, don't you know that what happened is a lot of, is probably an identity crisis because their identity as the people of God was so tied to Jerusalem and to the land that God had promised, the place that he said to Abraham, I'm gonna bring your people here. They'd been brought out of slavery and into this land. And so there's all these promises now that they're going, wait, are they still good? Are we still the people of God? Does he still call us his own? Does he still love us? I mean, just think about what I just read to you in 2 Kings chapter 25, what all happened? The temple got torn down. The walls of Jerusalem got torn down. The people got taken out of the land and into exile. The houses got burned down and the king's palace got burned down. Did everybody catch that when I read it? This is not just, oh, okay, like war is happening. No, this is the people of God now going into an identity crisis. Who are we if we're not the people of the land? Who are we if we're not the people that God protects? Who are we if we're not, you see where I'm going, right? The temple worship is no longer accessible to us. It does, the temple's gone. This is where we went to worship the Lord, at least where we were supposed to. So what are we, what are we to do? So their identity is thrown into all this confusion, confusion. Now, there's a big difference between our exile and the exile of the Jews. And here it is, is that the exile of the Jews came about because of their disobedience and sin. Our exile has come about because we've been rescued from our sin. You and I were at home in the world until Jesus redeemed us, and then we became exiles. Once our sin was dealt with, that's when we became people who were no longer home here. Does that make sense? That's when we became citizens of another kingdom, citizens of another city, belonging to another king with a place waiting for us, a city prepared for us, an eternity waiting for us. So that's a huge difference. And yet, in spite of that difference, I would argue this. There is still an identity confusion that is possible when you're living in exile. Because living in exile implies, it implies that you don't fit. Do you see that? To be in exile is to say, this is not the place I truly fit. It's not the place my heart resonates with. It's not the place that makes a ton of sense to me. And I don't make a lot of sense to it. And so there is this ill sense of fit. It's like a constant walking into a middle school cafeteria. Will anybody sit with me? Does anybody like me? Do I have a place? Are there a people for me? Right, you didn't know it was so theologically deep in middle school cafeterias, but it's the real deal, right? They're learning exile mentality every day. Now listen, as exiles, our exiled status can do one of two things and you got to flip it. You got to turn it the right way because being exiles who don't fit and you don't fit at your job when you're like arguing for integrity and honesty in spite of the bottom line and you don't fit in the public school system as a teacher when you're like, I can't teach that about gender and sexuality. I can't affirm that. It's not true. 
you don't fit. And the fit, it feels awkward and hard. And because you don't fit, it can cause you to go, oh man, like who am I? What's my value? What's my purpose? But don't you see, church, let me show you the very same thing that exiled mindset that says, I don't fit here that could cause an identity crisis can be the very thing that solidifies your identity because saying I don't fit here means I do fit there. And knowing I fit there, what does that do for me? It tells me I have a place I'm accepted, a place I belong, a place where my value is seen and cherished. I know who I belong to. So the the exiled status, while it can, in one sense, throw you into confusion, if you learn to leverage it, it can throw you out of confusion and into certainty. Does that make sense, church? See that. As exiles, we live learning to rest in our identity. Now, let me take you to Hebrews chapter 11 because, oh, such a rich text on exile. Listen to this. Now, this is great because this is not about the exile of the Jews into Babylon. This is way before that. The writer of Hebrews is talking about all these famous people of faith and he's lauding them for their faith. Old Testament saints. In particular here, he's talking about Judah, Abraham, and Sarah. And he's saying that they had this exile mindset. He's not talking about the Jews going to exile. This is long before that. He's saying that Abraham and Sarah, that when they looked at the world, they didn't feel like they fit there. And they revealed it through their choices. So watch what he says then about an exile mindset and about how it can shore up your sense of identity. Hebrews 11, 13 and 14 says, these all died in faith, talking about Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and what? Exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, what's the result of that? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you hear it? Abram lived as an exile. Sarah lived as an exile. They said, we're not looking towards earthly comfort and home here. We're looking to a better city. And we're looking to a God who's not ashamed to be called our God. They're filled with faith. It shored them up in certainty, not in uncertainty. I hope that makes sense. Lesson number three. Learning to live as exiles means learning to trust God will keep his promises. Learning to live as exiles means learning to trust that God will keep his promises. And I might add, even when it looks like there's no way he can. Maybe especially when it looks like there's no way he can. Now, let me get you, I told you, um, how many of you are, you know, we, we have the phrase, the forest for the trees, right? Any of you ever been accused of like missing the forest for the trees? You're so focused in on the small that you don't see the big. This is where we got to see the big, okay? In order to understand the true purpose of the exile across all of scripture, across all of God's redeeming history. And that's where we can truly gain our lesson from it. So 
Flip back to 2 Kings. Go to 2 Kings chapter 25, if you still got your Bibles open. And you guys are hanging with me. Good job, by the way. Well done. The end of chapter 25. This book ends in a weird way, all right? Let me read you this. It's a little nod, a little hint, a little like elbow nudge nudge, if you will, that's telling us something. And if you read this, like in your quiet time, my guess is you might read it and go like, that's a weird way to end this, all right? But listen, look at what he does. Verse 27 through 30 of 2 Kings chapter 25. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So Jehoiachin was king before Zedekiah. The first, the exile happened in stages. Jehoiachin and, the, and like Daniel are like the first to be taken into exile. Then Zedekiah is put on the throne. That's the part we read. It's the last stage and they're all taken out, all right? So Jehoiachin's now been in exile for 37 years. 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, the next king after Nebuchadnezzar, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. The end. Like, wait, what? Like, what? Is this just like a, okay, so our old king got to eat some good food. Two thumbs up. You think like, why, why is he doing this? Well, let's remember our story. God had made a promise to a king. That king's name was, anybody? David. 2 Samuel chapter seven, what was the promise? One of your sons will reign on the throne forever. It's a promise of the Messiah, a promise of the Savior. So all through our story, what have we seen? Israel goes into exile, they cease to exist. But Judah, even now going into exile, what is God saying right here at the end? The line of David is always being preserved. Even when they're terrible, he preserves them. Why? for the sake of my promise to my servant, David. Why does 2 Kings end with this story about Jehoiachin coming out of prison after 37 years? Because God is giving a little, little nod, little wink to you and saying, hey, remember my promise to David? Because I haven't forgotten it. You might've thought I've forgotten it. They're all going into exile. But the last word that I'm gonna speak in this book is Jehoiachin is being brought out of prison because I've still got a plan and I'm still gonna keep my promise. I'm still going to keep my promise. Now, that's the first thing that we see. Now, Jeremiah is prophesying during this time. And so we find in the book of Jeremiah, it would have been Jeremiah writing to the exiles. He's called the prophet of weeping because it's just one bad thing after another, to be honest, in Jeremiah. And so he's the contemporary of Zedekiah, of Jehoiachin, and he's writing to the exiles there. Flip over or go to the screen, Jeremiah chapter 23 Jeremiah chapter 23, and I want to show you another thing that we see here. So he's saying, hey, I'm keeping my promise to David. That's why I'm talking about Jehoiachin. But Jeremiah is going to tell us even more. There's something even more going on. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 3 through 6 says this. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock. That term remnant is going to be really important for us. 
Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So what he's just said, Jeremiah, is even though this exile has happened, I am going to bring a remnant back from that exile, back to the land, back to Jerusalem. So here's what we're learning about the exile. Oh, it's not as if God said, hey, I had this great plan, but then my people screwed it up and now I've got to send them into exile. And so there's really nothing I can do about it. God is saying, no, no, I've had a purpose in the exile. And the purpose of the exile is to reveal the remnant. The remnant is the true people of God, faithful down through the ages. It was never God's intent to say a people marked by a physical lineage are my people. He says, no, no, it's always been the people of faith that are the true remnant. And we're gonna look at that in just a second. But here's what I want you to see. The exile reveals the remnant. And then they're gonna be brought back into the land. But then the remnant does something else. Exile reveals the remnant. Now remnant reveals the righteous branch. Look at verse five and six. Behold, the days are coming. So this is right after what he just said about the remnant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That is language directly from Isaiah 4 and Isaiah 11. We studied those, that book a while ago. If you remember, that's the name for the Messiah, the righteous branch. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. All right, so follow along with me now. Here's what we've learned. God is sending them into exile to reveal the remnant and through the remnant, the righteous branch will be revealed. And then God is gonna do something through the righteous branch. But the first thing I want you to see is that God is keeping his promises, amen? And the longer you live in exile, the, longer, the more it can feel like, well, God, do you remember me? The longer we wait for Jesus to come back is the longer we live in exile. And the longer that happens, the more we find ourselves probably saying, do you remember me? How long, O oh Lord, the more difficulty we encounter, sometimes because of our sinful choices, sometimes because we live in a fallen world that is a mess, and sometimes because we don't fit here, and it just is difficult. But in all of those things, we are prone as exiles to think, is there any purpose in this? Like, why are, why are we still here? Why won't you come and bring an end to this? And in all of this, here's what I want you to see from this exile reveals the remnant, which reveals the righteous branch, is that has God ever stopped keeping his promise to the nation in this text? No, his promise to David goes forward. In the moment that looks darkest, it's not just that God keeps his promise in spite of the thing happening to you. The thing happening to you is part of how he will keep his promise to you. Do you see the difference? The exile is not plan B. It's not God adjusting to the sin of his people. It has been determined that it would be the way that he would reveal the remnant and through that remnant, send the righteous branch. He keeps his promises always. He never fails. Not one falls to the ground. 
he is the only one who has the perfect knowledge to always make promises he knows are right. And he's the only one with the strength to bring about the fulfillment of every promise. He never finds in himself any lack of strength to say, I know I made that promise, but I just can't keep it. It's just beyond my strength. It's beyond my knowledge. It's beyond my power to understand how God is the only being in all of existence who never has to say that. How many, it was Father's Day, how many dads, don't raise your hand, have said, I promise I will do such and such. And then you realize three days later, there's no way I can keep that promise. Not because you didn't want to, but because it was beyond your capacity to. We've all done that. And we don't like it. That never happens to God. Now, that brings us to lesson number four about how the righteous branch who's revealed by the remnant, which is revealed by the exile, the last lesson about living as exiles. I mean, truly embracing an exile mindset. The last lesson about living as exiles is this, is that learning to live as exiles means living to see people restored to God. Living as exiles means living to see people restored to God. If you and I truly understand ourselves as strangers and aliens, as Hebrew says it, as exiles, what that will mean for us is that we will be laser focused on seeing other people join us in eternity. And we've got to recapture that. It has been a season of confusion for the church and we have gotten lost. We have worried about secondary issues instead of primary issues. We have loved dissension rather more than unity. We have got to restore our mission mindset. We are here as exiles, soon to be taken home, and we have got to take as many people with us as we possibly can. That's what matters. I'm not saying secondary issues don't matter. I'm not saying that they're not worth hashing through and wrestling with and discussing. Of course, seeing God's kingdom come to earth and all his justice and righteousness come bear upon our society, of course those things matter, but nothing matters more than seeing people join us as exiles who will one day be brought home. There's nothing that matters more than that. And we have got to get our minds and our eyes on it. I'm so tired of being distracted by issues that do not have nearly the significance of this. And we are going to be focused. Yes, church? We are going to be focused. Listen to what Acts 15 says. I love this. I had not noticed this before. I don't know how. I had not noticed this before studying this week. So listen. Talked about the remnant, how God is, uses the remnant, right? <clears throat> to reveal the righteous branch. This is now New Testament, Acts chapter 15, Jerusalem council. The spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles and the Jews are shocked. They're like, oh my goodness. Okay, what does this mean? Right? And God reveals what it means. And then as they come together as a council, their decision, a very wise one, is to say, no, we don't, we don't require Gentiles to obey Jewish law in order to become Christians, right? It's not about the law. So look at what he then says, quoting from Amos. This is James talking. And we'll begin in verse, uh, let me begin in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, 
has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Think, just understand what a big deal it is for a Jewish man to say the Gentiles are a people for his name, being called by his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he's saying what Peter is saying is what the prophets were saying way back when. And then he says, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. So that's Amos talking about the remnant coming back from Babylon. Everybody follow that? I'm gonna bring the remnant, the line of David, I'm gonna bring them back. We've now revealed through this sanctifying process of the exile who the true remnant are. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Why? That the remnant not of Judah or Israel, but who? The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Do you see what James has just said? He's just said, the exile was to reveal the remnant. The remnant was to reveal the righteous branch and the righteous branch reveals what? that salvation is for everyone, that there is a remnant of people from every nation that is being drawn, that is being brought forth. In Romans chapter 11, verses one to six, right? Here's the beauty of the exile revealing the remnant, revealing then the righteous branch, is that God reveals something else through the exile. So Romans chapter 11, verse one, one of these key texts, when it comes to understanding what God is up to, Romans 11, one to six, there's this whole discussion about, well, how do the church and Israel as a nation relate to one another? And listen to what Paul says. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Talking about Israel. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? This is 1 Kings 19. Do we all remember this? It says they're all worshiping false gods. They're all worshiping Baal. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Paul says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's, that's the remnant so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by what? Grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here's what I want you to see. This whole exile thing is about revealing to you and I and to the whole world that God saves people by grace through faith, not by works. The exile reveals the remnant, the remnant reveals the righteous branch, and the righteous branch reveals that he is, the remnant is not a people just of the nation of Israel who obey the law. The remnant is a people who, whether they were under the old covenant or the new, were always a people of faith. Abraham was justified by faith, right? The remnant of Israel were justified by faith faith. And he's saying that's always been the case for Jews and for Gentiles. The remnant that God is raising up to call by his name are a people redeemed by faith. 
That's the point. I just said, you gotta get your eyes up on the forest for the trees. If you just look at the story of 2 Kings 25, you think to yourself, wow, what a depressing end. But if you understand that God is using the exile to reveal that salvation for the whole world is coming, but it's coming by faith and not by works, then you understand this is a crucial moment in the story and it's telling us something way bigger than just a group of people got taken out of their homeland and into a foreign land. And it's telling us something way bigger than just there are consequences for sin. It's telling us God is on the move. Now listen, last, last text here that I'm gonna read to you and you guys have been great to jump around with me. And we'll conclude with this. First Peter, going back there, which is this exile-themed book. If the Jews' exile existed to reveal that salvation was by grace through faith, then what does our exile exist for? The same thing. The same thing. We are exiles so that people would know salvation by grace through faith. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 tells us this. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and what? Exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, holiness, the very first point we made. Obey, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul because your soul now has a new orientation. It's changed. Verse 12, keep your conduct so what does he do with that? It's called a holiness. And then what does he go from there? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles. So he's using that phrase Gentiles there as a, as a euphemism, as a metaphor for someone who doesn't believe. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, among unbelievers honorable, so that when they speak against you, when they say what you're doing is good is bad, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what will be the result and glorify God on the day of visitation. He doesn't mean glorify God through their condemnation. He means glorify God so that when he visits, when he returns, they are saved. That they may see your good deeds, you, part of the remnant, an exile, living for the city that you have not yet seen, not for the city in which you currently live, living as if to bring heaven to earth, and the righteousness of God in your life, the holiness of God in your life, that as you do that, everyone who looks at you and is prone to say, you don't fit here and the things you're doing are wrong, they would see your, your conduct is so becoming, so right, so true, so gentle, so meek, so full of the power of the spirit that they would see that in you and they would say, you know what? They know something I don't know. They know someone I don't know. And that then through that process of questioning, they would come to see the God who has invited them to come and become a citizen of his kingdom. See, what 1 Peter 2 is telling us is that our exile exists to make more exiles who will one day come to the true city, who will one day come home. And we have got to be laser focused on it. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Pray that our meditating upon it today has been pleasing to you. And as, we, as I asked at the beginning, that our minds would be sharp to receive your word and that our hearts would be soft. Yeah, don't let it be the reverse. We don't want soft minds and hard hearts. We want sharp minds and soft hearts. 
Would you give us that, Lord Jesus, so that you'd be glorified and honored? And now, Lord, if we, if we praised you at the beginning of our time in order to prepare our hearts to receive your word, then what we're doing now is we're turning to you, having heard your word and wanting to respond and give you glory and give you praise because your word resounds in our hearts. It resounds as what is true. The spirit within us cries out that your word is true as we hear it truly proclaimed. And so we pray that it has been. We pray that you would bear fruit from it in accordance with your word. As you've told us, it will not return void. It will not return empty. And so we pray, let it have its way now. We turn to worship you. You're worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together to conclude our time together.